Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. The Province Sports Podcast. Welcome to the White Towel Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman. We'll be joined here by Ed Willis. Please subscribe, download, listen to all our White Towel content uh, podcasts. We will do videos for you every week. Uh, if you're a Whitecaps fan as well, we've started a new podcast, a fan podcast called Sing While You're Whining. Look for that. Subscribe to it as well. Ed, thank you for joining me. Will you please pass the salt? <laughs> Yeah, we've got we've got the kind of like like a long dining room table at the British Manor here. I thought I thought we actually had a butler to do that. Yeah, as we expand our podcasting empire, our producer Dharma Kwan is in here with us, <laughs> and we're endeavoring to make this the sound quality as good as we can. Ed and I, just to visualize, you are we are sitting at about a 10, 12 foot table at opposite ends. That's why I asked him to pass the salt, not because we're going to get salty, as the kids like to say. Uh, <laughs> Ed, I wanted to start by this. What a you know, this this incident that flared up yesterday on both sports talk radio stations, uh, also a little bit online, people questioning whether Brock, Brock Besser is still a good player. Um, now, to be fair, it was framed by Andrew Walker as just part of a conversation starter. Last year, everyone thought Besser was a star and essentially said that he was put on a pedestal and said, what if he's only a good player and not a great player? Whereas people have been looking at Pedersen and Besser as foundational cornerstones Look, let's be honest, sophomore slump, injuries, the burden of a young player being, you know, not being helped out by the veterans at all. I guess it's fair as a conversation starter, but should we be concerned about Brock Besser? I'm certainly not. Well, yeah, I, I, here, here's the concern. Is he a 25-30 goal scorer or is he a 35-40 goal scorer? And there's a world of difference in the NHL. The 35-40 goal scorer in today's landscape is basically a superstar right next to it. The 25-30 goal scorer, there's a lot of guys like that around the league. Valuable piece to have. But if he's going to be your best scoring winger going forward, I think you have to have a long look at your team. So, you know, I think the presumption was last year what he had 29 and 6. Which translates to like 35 in his rookie season. He was going to build on that and he was going to be like a legitimate elite level sniper. We just haven't seen that this year for a variety of reasons. He's he's uh, he's battled injuries at the start of the year. I, I think the big thing, and this is so crucial, like all the young guys, since that power play has dried up, their numbers have dried up along with them. So, you know, if you add another five, six power play goals to Besser's total. I don't think we're having this conversation. I think you can say the same thing about Horvat. You can say the same thing about so many of their players. So that, that, that to me is the issue. Is he that kind of electric frontliner, a guy you can build a first line or 
be a you know a valuable piece on the first line or is he just kind of a a guy who'll score you some goals so that's a bigger picture question to me like why like why last year was you know he this this absolutely amazing player that was going to be mm-hmm. a, a you know a first line part of the Canucks future and that this year, because he's, if you want to call it a slump or hasn't been as spectacular, um, now the pendulum swung the other way. I guess that's the age we live in with so many voices all, you know, swinging back and forth uh, instantly every hour, depending on each development. I mean, yes, there are reasons why you could surmise that this would happen. Teams have figured out what you do well. It's a long grind. He did have a very bad injury, wasn't necessarily in shape. Um, the weight, as I say again, of this team, are you, I ask you again, are you, like, where are you convinced Brock Besser is? Is Do you still see 50 goal potential in him? Or should people say, oh, well, you know what? Maybe he's not the superstar he appeared to be last year. Well, I, I, th- I think what we've seen here makes it fair to ask that question. I have no idea what he is. I've got, I've got, a re, I've got an educated guess. You know, I, I think he's going to be a guy who in a really good year will push 40. And I think there's kind of a range there. And in a, you know, a, a, a quote unquote down year, it'll probably be closer to 25. But I think that's kind of a, an acceptable range for a lot of players of that ilk. I watched Jeff Skinner last night playing for Buffalo. 37 goals, career high, and he's kind of regarded. I mean, he's a UFA, and he is, you know, he's going to be a very attractive piece on the market. He's going to get a massive contract uh, this offseason. But, you know, again, I think if you look at his career, it's, it, it kind of falls into a lot of what we've seen from Besser. Obviously, it's over a longer time frame, but you've seen that, you know, the high end, 36, 37, 38, maybe in a really good year, 40. And then there have been other, other seasons where he hasn't produced nearly at that rate. So I think that's what we might be looking at at Besser. And, and I know it's tricky because, and I think we're going to get, this is where this conversation is leading. So do you commit to him? Do you do you put a long term offer in front of him seven eight years at you know seven million eight million whatever it is because you're convinced he's going to be that guy or do you wait and see this play out if do you do you try and get a bridge deal together and then maybe now you've got like a four year sample size to judge him on and then I think you can maybe make a little more accurate uh, assessment of what he's worth. I. Again, I know it's it can be popular to maybe blame management for everything, but I do. I wonder about the the, the ongoing desire on management's part to have pieces like Jay Beagle and uh, Brandon Sutter, and prior to that, even get Sam Gagne. And I know that these guys, obviously, some of them moved on, some of them are injured. But this idea that you can't go full scale with the kids because you need someone to mentor them and bring them along and take the pressure off them and yet to me I see a couple of kids a couple of stars who are now going through a rough patch because this season has worn them down so what about this strategy of bringing in veterans to ease the load when they don't seem capable of doing it? I mean, one goal in a month for Jay Beagle. Well, I don't think you have to look any any farther than the Canucks' one loss record over the last four years to say not only has it been a failure, it's been a cataclysmic failure. These and all guys, at the same time of year, too. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. And it, so these are the guys who are supposed to, like, you know, insulate the young kids, protect them, provide leadership, all those things. And, and that's what we're staring at. And that's why I think these, like, I know we're going to get into this later, but 
that's why I think these last 16 games are so crucial for this franchise and the Benning administration. Because if they do another free fall, if they fall off the face of the map again, now you're just like Well, and they're every hanging question, on by one hand now, Ed. <laughs> every, well, I know, but they, they, I think they can still salvage some, something out, out of this. Right now, now, maybe you can just write off this last like thirteen game stretch as just one of those valleys you inevitably encounter over the grind of an NHL season. But if it continues right through now, now we're basically talking about from early February. You're talking about two months when games mattered, where this team not only wasn't good enough, it wasn't even competitive, and that's what we've seen the the previous three years, and that just. That just brings in a whole host of unwanted questions for this franchise. Well, they did talk about meaningful games in March, and I'll almost have, made it. I'll they have to check almost that, that, that made that it. One, the second Coyotes game last week that was in March, I believe. That, you that, see, was like, that still meaningful? Well, okay, but it's crazy how fast this changed. Because, like, I went on that California road trip, which I believe started February 13th in Anaheim. At that point, they were tied for eighth place. There were percentage points because they had a game in hand over whoever actually held down eighth place. But it looked for all the world like the narrative was playing out that you know they probably weren't going to make it because they lacked the depth but what they had was good enough to keep them competitive right up until the final week two weeks of the season the problem is they've won three games since then over a 13 game stretch i think actually it goes back before that but the point stands so here we are again looking at this thing benning has created and 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 asking why 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 is this failed so fundamentally over and over and over again? And yet I kind of end up pointing to this back to the same place. Well, I think that Vegas game was a bit of a I don't know if it was a slap to a lot of fans, but you know, it's one thing to be in a slump as they were mm-hmm. earlier in the year. Uh, you know, they started well, then they went in that slide, but they were competitive in all those games. And the idea that That's if right. Jacob Markstrom is holding them in games and the rest of the team well, looks so far yeah. behind. I mean, other teams have cranked it up. There's no doubt Vegas have their eyes on the playoffs and... You know, they hadn't had the greatest first half of the season, but they look like a team that's getting playoff ready. So here are the Canucks looking desperately outclassed again. And is, is this just a tired team? Because they're tired every year at this time. Well, how can, how can they be? Like, how can they be the one team out of 31 that gets tired every year and, and, and pulls the shoot over the final six weeks of the season? I, again, that is just a damning indictment of this franchise and the way it's been built. And it, and again, it's, you know, I think they were able to sell the story they were trying to tell because those California games, they only won one in a shootout. But really, they played well enough to get four points out out of the six. They, you know, surrendered a late goal against San Jose in a loss. They lose one nothing because Anaheim brings this kid up from the American League and has a dream game in his first NHL start. Okay, that stuff happens. But I look over the three games in that road trip. And you've got, like, the first game, Markstrom absolutely steals a point. He's, I can't remember how many saves, but it was in the high 30s. Uh, outclassed against the Arizona Coyotes. The next, And that was disturbing. They get two days off to build for this game in Las Vegas, and they weren't within a million miles of the Knights. And, and that, again, they build up a bit of goodwill in the first four months of the season, and that was against the backdrop of the last three years. But to me, they've they've spent it all. They've squandered it all, and and we're kind of right back in that depressing place we've been for the last four years. You talked about 
we talked about Besser. Are you concerned at all about Pedersen? Is it just a kid who's the, no. the length of the season or like being the guy who has to do it every game? No, 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 not at all. It's just, again, it's more an indictment of the organization than Pedersen. I think, I think this was eminently predictable. Uh, <laughs> this guy is still built like a, an HB pencil. He's still probably two, three years at least, maybe even more from being physically mature, you know, to handle 82 games, you know, and you also think of it like, you know, the, the schedule he played. And I know somebody had a longer look at it. Like, I think last year he ended up playing 60 games. Big difference between si- playing 60 games, Swedish Elite League, World Juniors, has a depth player in a world championship team than playing 82 games in an NHL schedule. 22 games, if my math is correct, but I got in a journal because I was no good with numbers. Um, I'm no capologist. Uh, now, you have a piece that is coming, will be posted later on on Tuesday. So if you're listening to this, you should be able to go read it um, about what's happening in Utica. And again, there was, while, while Pedersen was doing well and there weren't the questions about Besser and people were sort of happy with some of the progress that the big team had made, um, Along the way, there were questions that had bubbled up closer to Christmas around, is Jonah Gadjevich developing? Is he getting enough minutes? Is Cole Lynn? Like, what about these young guys? Are they, is Utica the right development uh, format for them? And then, of course, we had the trade deadline and Jonathan Dolan moves. Now, massive asterisk on this. Just seeing on social media this morning, that being Tuesday morning, that there was um, some translated comments from uh, an interview he did with a Swedish journalist, which seemed to point the finger at Utica, suggesting he wasn't used properly there, didn't develop properly. Uh, and also, you know, saying he'd suffered some abuse from Canuck fans, which is uh, online. So he's had to shut down his social channels. Now, that's a separate issue, but it speaks to the demands of playing in this market. But f- you talked with Ryan Johnson. What's your thoughts on is Utica on the right track? Are they doing the right thing? Should Canuck fans have faith that if you're bringing more young prospects into the mix that they're going to get to the big club in the end in the right state? Okay, well, let's start with Dallin and his situation in Utica because I, you know, I asked I asked Johnson specifically and he, like, he spoke, spoke in broad terms, but he said kid, but you know, almost all of his production was on the power play for starters. And I'm a big Jonathan Dallin fan to, to, to start with. I, I was really taken aback by that trade. Uh, but, but having said that, this is, this is kind of the organization's point of view. He played with skilled players. He was on the power play. He got ample opportunity. It was a bit of a struggle for him as it is for a lot of like first year pros that American league is a tough, tough league. Um, there's also kind of a, a backstory there that goes back to him going to Sweden when the club wanted him to, the, the, the Canucks wanted him to, to play in Utica last year. He comes right from Sweden in this dream year. He plays two games with Utica, and he's also a healthy scratch in their first playoff game against the Marlies, and that didn't sit well with Dolan in his camp. So I, I don't think it reflects really well on the player that after one year he was – he's basically pulling the plug on the organization. Um, but that didn't come out of a vacuum either. And it, it, it should be a little troubling to Canucks fans that they had this either very good or pretty good prospect in the pipeline who just like w- wanted a fresh start after less than one full season in the AHL. Uh, now Utica. That, that, that's a tough one. It, it really is. And, and 
people will read like like Johnson goes on and on about just how tedious and 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 how effortful it is to develop junior players who are all 80 90 100 point stars and getting them to try and play an NHL style game and Johnson says he knows exactly what's needed and they know exactly what's needed in Utica to transform these guys into effective NHL players and that takes time and they just haven't had enough time yet. But he still thinks Cole Lind has, he's only got two goals, but he's taken strides. He thinks the same thing with Gadjevich, two goals, but in his first year as a pro, he's taken strides. It's a, it's a tricky situation, isn't it? Because, I mean, do you want your team to win and that will that develop that competitive edge? Or is it about, you know what, winning is nice, but we you know these guys need ice time. Like there's this balance of, well, you have to play to get better, or are you trying to teach them a lesson that if they don't do like the hard work, the gritty stuff, the difficult things, that you won't get your ice time. So you have to earn your ice time. Or is it just about teaching this team how to win? You know what? If there's a if there's a journeyman in the lineup in front of you and the team's getting results, you're gonna have to outwork him to get your spot. But then you're not getting the ice time. Like in your mind, is there a proven model about how you should go with your minor league team? No, and you know, and I think that's the one point you place you to can can legitimately point and say they've held up the end of the, their end of the bargain because they have put a competitive team on the ice. Like they didn't, have, you know, they probably thought they were going to get Thatcher Demko as their goalie for at least half, maybe two thirds of this season. They didn't have him that, and they were also missing him, you know, right off the hop because he was dealing with the concussion issue. So they've been, they haven't had their goaltending fixed the the injuries at the Canucks level is you know have affected them but they're still 10 games over 500 and they're they're a solid playoff team so within that framework they are working guys into the lineup and they have to be part of a reasonably successful team so I think on that basis yeah I think they always they also like you know if they're going to air they're always they're going to air on the side of the young player I guess the question that bothers Canucks fans is, you know, do they do they sell out in that air? Do they continue to throw those guys out 15, 16, 17, 18 minutes a game at the expense of the Tanner Kairos and, and players of that ilk who are kind of, you know, basically career minor leaguers, a guy you might call up to fill a hole in your NHL team two, for two, three games, but not a legitimate NHL prospect. I mean, I think that that has been the frustrating part for for Canuck fans in many respects is they wanted to see Jonathan Dolan up here. Yeah. And maybe that's where the player is impatient. And you, as you said, it, it, it's funny, harkening back to what you said about a few minutes ago, Jonathan Dolan and his camp, whenever you hear the and his camp, it never seems to go well from the team's perspective. But, you know, I think, I think people can rightly question some of the journeymen that have been brought in at the NHL level that get ice time seemed like just granted to them, even though there's like no offensive production. And yet you could say, you know what? No, let's see what you can do at the big club level versus you have to earn it. And I think this is a thing that, that I think everyone will wrestle with, but at the end of the day, we know the Canucks at least have a vision. You have to earn your ice time. You are not going to be given anything for free. And that even, you can even point back to Brock Besser last year being scratched at the start of the season. You know, it's funny. You, you, the one guy I would like to see with the NHL team is Brendan Gaunt. 6'2", 210. You know, he's a very productive player at the American League level. He's been he was in his cameos with the Canucks. He's been a productive player. 
I don't see what what he offers is I'm sorry what he offers has to be the equivalent of a lot Marcus Granlund are you kidding me like he's got to be able to at least provide that much uh and guy's 25 and he's kind of at that you know he's kind of been in the middle of a typecasting himself as a career minor leaguer I just want to find out about him I I think Zach McEwen is taken a big step this year for a guy who's in his second year as a pro who wasn't even drafted in the Quebec League. You know, he's all of a sudden has worked his way into a call-up position, and he's been very productive. So there are some good signs. I'm sorry. The other thing I wanted to mention is Ole Ulevi has really kind of skewed this whole conversation because Johnson raved about his development there. And again, you know, he was putting up points. He had a terrible plus-minus. That will out, I guess. But they really thought if they had a whole year under him to work with him, they could really turn him into a guy who'd play teams. I'm sorry, play minutes at the NHL level this season. And when you look at the Canucks' defense, you think like a healthy, productive Ulevi. If they put him in and he did have success at the NHL level, that would be a massive boost for the organization. Is this a wake-up call for everyone, including the owner, uh, judging by his own thoughts on social media? that when everyone was enamored with the Canucks being in a playoff race and that they they were a team that had made progress and how valuable that was going to be, um, that really if, if their star power isn't getting it done, that there's nothing there. You talked about yep. Granlund, even Barchi before he was hurt. Um, you just run down the line. I mean, Roussel's been a nice story for what he was brought into. Reference Shea Beagle, Louis Erickson again. I mean, it's that's water under the bridge. They're stuck with what they're stuck with. But you look at what this team has, and there really isn't much there beyond a couple of key pieces. And yes, we know Quinn Hughes yep. is coming, but does this show that there's a crying need for a lot more work still and that they're not just a piece or two away? Well, and that's why... They- to you know, <laughs> double back to the point I was making before. And again, that's why these sixteen games are so crucial. Like, do they really have something in Tanner Pearson? Is he, he was brought in to be a top six forward? End of discussion. There was no debate about that. So he has to prove over these sixteen games that yeah, he can be that guy. And if he is that guy, that ticks a box for the Canucks. That's something they don't have to go. If he isn't, that's something they have to address through free agency. And there's so many players like that. Like, I mean, people for the most part have been, you know, pleasantly surprised by Ben Hutton and Troy Stetcher this year, right? Guys, I don't think anybody is mistaking them for top pairing guys, but maybe like a four who can play up, you know, but a top four guys, whatever that is. If the Canucks, like I said, if they continue this free fall, you look at those two guys, well, what are they? They're just they're just average players on a bad team. And that's not going to move the Canucks. And there's so many players like that. Who? I, what's Josh Levo? He was basically given to the Canucks. Reed Boucher 2.0. Yeah, that's honestly you you can you can reasonably ask that question. Would Reed would Reed Boucher provide the same level of production that Josh Levo has? And this is a guy who was basically given to the Canucks by the Leafs because there was no more room for him. Looked like he was going to be a fixture, but again, there's a bottom line there. And when you're in the top six, you've got to produce, and he just hasn't produced at a top six level. Um, if we go back to maybe the the, the pressures or the um, the challenges facing young players like Besser and Pedersen in this market and all the attention and all the scrutiny and everything else, and we tie it in to again, take Jonathan Dolan at his Swedish word that I have no idea if they're translated properly or not, that that uh, there was abuse. 
Is Vancouver different from any other market? Is this, we, we had a conversation about this earlier in the coffee shop here. Yeah. Um, you know, I even suggest that we got, <laughs> in a very minor way, got dragged into this when the whole Pedersen is prickly conversation mm -hmm. came up and the online abuse that was hurled at us. Kind of used to that in our job. I don't pay much attention to it. But is Vancouver different from other markets? You hear some people, I referenced Andrew Walker before, who said that it has, yeah. that it's worse here than it is in Toronto. Do you, in talking to people, players, well, media, we, is it bad here? It, and I've had this conversation a, a ton over the last couple of years, and and the way it's framed is this is like like such a tough media market, and then the media is so hard on teams, and that's what makes it difficult the media is basically about five, six people. That's it. <laughs> you know, full time. So, so to me, the it all boils down to that social media aspect, and 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 there, it, it's different. I don't have anything to compare it to because I've been here for twenty years. And when I was working in Montreal, when I was working in Winnipeg, there was really there was no such thing as Twitter. So I, I don't really have anything to judge it by, but over and over and over again, I hear from colleagues in other cities, if you make a, a comment, Mark Spector, for example, a comment that's remotely disparaging of the Canucks, not only do you hear about it, but you hear about it in such a virulent, abusive manner. And, and, and I think that's what sets that apart. Now, does that trickle down to the players? Do the players feel that? I, I don't think so. Are they that in love with their Twitter feed that they look over everything that you know that that, that sent uh, sent to them and like like, like all, all the notifications, all those things? I I don't know. I think it's part of the narrative for us. It's part of the narrative for people, in, you know, in talk show. I think that's true. I just don't see it in terms of uh, in, in terms of the the larger marketplace and the things that are relevant to the players. Well. <laughs> I do know that in, in decades past, you would hear Canuck general managers and coaches say, I don't read the paper. And I think, no. it was, you know, I, I don't think Jim Benning is pouring over mentions of him on Twitter yeah. because if he is, he wow. wouldn't have time for much else uh, because it is overwhelming, just the volume of stuff. But it, I think it's an interesting question, one that we might have to delve into. I will say just, you know, every time Francesco Aquilini decides to live tweet a game, I'm in just for the replies alone because – uh, this may be a very angry market, but there's also a very apparently strong uh, contingent of of uh, amateur stand-up comedians here because no one's coming with an honest feedback, and it can be entertaining. Uh, but it is—it's very nasty. There's an edge here, and I can't get a grip on whether it's—I mean, the internet has that on a whole. Yeah. YouTube comments, everything. I know I like to wear funny shirts sometimes, and whenever Darm does a video of me and it goes up there, I just I. It just depends on my mood about whether I want to read the comments or not. Yeah. But this market, when you talk about it being tough, yeah, I don't know so much that it's the media that makes it tough because yeah. those numbers have dwindled. Yes, there's a lot of attention, but the uh, maybe it's because we don't have anything else yet. I mean, all due respect to the Lions and Whitecaps, we don't have an NBA team or a Major League Baseball team or other things to take. I wonder what it's like in Montreal where the Canadians are the be-all and end-all. I, I've got one guy who, who feels it necessary to, to tweet me directly about what he sees are the Lions' failings. That's one guy. The Canucks, they, they're absolutely legion. And I, I don't know if it's tough so much as it's just angry. And, I, like, after seeing what I've seen over the last four years and five of the last six, I can sort of understand the, the source of that anger. But it's just the way it's expressed that's uh, just really doesn't serve any purpose and doesn't really move the dialogue further 
I, I do. I, I do. I like exchanging with you know with people who have you know well thought out be, uh, criticism. No problem. Have you found one? Uh, no, they they do exist. They do exist. You have you just have to wade through a lot, a lot to find them. So right? I ha- I've been getting steady responses from a Twitter user, obviously uses a pseudonym, who claims that he started a GoFundMe to try and get an open letter uh, from the fans to the Canucks to, I believe, fire the general manager. I'm just like, hey I'm man, sorry, why does he have to go- start a GoFundMe page? Can he just like? I'll give him 35 cents. He can go buy a stamp and put it on in snail mail. Is that- <laughs> hey, look, I'm, I just pass along the advertising okay, number. Yeah, I don't yeah, sell right, ads. Right, okay. uh, maybe if it comes to fruition, I would get commission out of it. But no, it's just an interesting, we talk about it being an angry market. It'll be interesting to see if the tenor changes, if the team's successful at all. Um, but it just seems like it wears me out. It's exhausting. The, yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and, and again, to that same extent, I wonder what it does for the players. I mean, yes, we've seen a lot of injured players, but you talk about these last games. We'll just sort of finish up here when we talk about it. Um, there are, I don't know how many questions there are to answer because there's so many players that you would put in that same category. But, you know, without a healthy Vertan and without a, a, you know, a healthy Sutter, you're looking at these players and going, well, who is here who's really fighting for a job next year? Yeah, like oh, they're fighting for a job. Whether or not, well, they but they all di- are. That's the yeah, problem. Whether or not it? they can be difference makers if they actually win that job is is, is the bigger question. So if you're a fan and you're looking at all these players and going like, okay, yeah. fight for the job. I hope you don't win it because you're just not good enough. Well, you know, if I'm looking at it this way, I'm going and I've got I've got big concerns. And you know, we haven't really talked about this, but I I, I think Quinn Hughes shakes shapes up. It's just a massive. Uh, story for the Canucks over these last and I, I think I think they're, he's only going to play nine games because there are issues that will, will arise to, uh, to in the expansion draft if he plays any more than that but all of a sudden okay if he shows if he shows and he gives the power play a spark and he revitalizes Patterson revitalizes Besser and, and he is he's a dynamic player He's all of that. He's also mistake prone, and he's also a kid who's going to be trying to play a really tough position in, in the NHL. But if he does all that, that again changes the conversation around the Canucks over these games. Now we can start looking forward. Now we can start, geez, a whole season of Quinn Hughes running but the power Ed, play and Andy Patterson on one side and Besser on the other. And you know how that goes. I do, but that that's the old axiom about, you know, if you don't, take your lessons from history, you're bound to repeat your failures. Yeah, Sandiana. Yeah, so, you know. Great guitar we, player, by the way. He was, he was. You know, I know there was injury last year with Besser. Um, yeah, loved his work with Rob Thomas. Um, you know, I, I you look at the uh, Besser's injury, how last year finished, how it impacted this year. Now people questioning whether he's a lead or just good. Pedersen's obviously wearing down. Isn't that a lessons to learn with Quinn Hughes and putting too much on him in his first NHL season well, to be yeah. a savior and also considering and t- tell me if I'm wrong on this because I hear counter arguments as well you should expect defensemen to take longer to develop mm-hmm. certainly so but I mean that's the I guess Pandora's box Canucks are, yes. fans are stuck yeah, in no, is you look at Quinn Hughes as a savior he's going to change everything he's a difference maker but then what does that do to him when he's here yeah, we well, spent this no, whole, no. we spent this whole time and, and talking that's about why, that. That's why, to me, it's such a fascinating story. So you know, let, let me pose this to you. If he does for the Canucks next year what Patterson did this year, okay, that that's a huge ask, right? 
But let's say he has like, massive. Let's say he has a, a, like a similar. This is a guy who's basic, who's rated on a lot of boards, has the best prospect not playing in the NHL this year. So it figures he's going to, you know, he's going to, he's going to, he's he's going to do something when he gets in the lineup. How much is that thing? But if he, if all of his, and Pedersen has raised the bar here, right? It, he has demonstrated that a rookie can step in and make a huge difference in his first year. And okay? not be phased by a bunch of, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So so Hughes, no, and again, if he's that guy, changes so many things for the Canucks. It puts a lot of pressure on the kid. This is what I like about Quinn Hughes, though. He was born into this world. His dad's been a an NHL player personnel guy, mostly with the Leafs, but he's been around the game. He's been in NHL locker room since he was seven, eight years old. He understands the gig, and he understands every. You talk to him, Paul. I talked to him but prior to the World Junior on the phone. I said, you know, I, I'm sorry, I got to interrupt you. Are you 19 or 32? Because he was so polished and, and so sure of himself and confident. And that's the kind of player he is. Now, it's not going to translate that smoothly on the ice. But he's a kid I'd bet on just based on that. So just setting Canuck fans up to to temper their <laughs> their thoughts for the next six seven years. He didn't wear Leafs jammies, did he? No, he didn't. He okay. did. He did not. Okay, it was interesting to hear the dad's relationship with the Leafs, who of course are here this week, and that's just another reason for Canuck fans to be aggravated. I still think like I I don't six o'clock start. Yeah, I no, like I, I don't understand why people get upset at the four o'clock start on the weekends. I could see dealing with Vancouver traffic. Six yeah. o'clock start is not a good thing. The fact you're doing it just for the Leafs kind of pisses me off a little bit but everything seems to piss me off these days uh ed thanks for that we'll end it here i want to thank everyone for listening um again we will continue to bring you these as uh we'll get patrick johnson ben kuzma in to do their stuff as well uh subscribe through apple podcasts give us a rating this is the white towel podcast we'll be back to talk to you next week